This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 14th and 15th of April 2016, the Caldor Centre was proud to co-sponsor a symposium at All Souls College, Oxford, to celebrate the scholarship of Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill. The symposium brought together leading international refugee law scholars and practitioners. The following podcast is a presentation by Catherine Costello, titled Safe Country Says Who. It is a quote. It is a quote from the great man. Yeah, I'm rarely intimidated, but this is an intimidation (laughs) (laughs) properly so. Um, Not only because, obviously, All Souls has an intimidating feel to it, but it's been such a wonderful day. Um, And obviously we're here to honour Guy, and I have to begin by uh, thanking him. Um, I think Alex summed up his um, great generosity with his time, which as somebody who teaches law in the Refugee Studies Centre, um, I benefit from all the time, and I know... I was having conversations just by and by with colleagues here about how the art of being a good academic depends on saying no, but I really can't think of an example of Guy ever, ever saying no, whether that's to teach about statelessness or to the uh, MSc students who've benefited from seeing him a number of times this year. I, I get to sit and be the student, so if he ever wonders why I ask him to lecture different topics every year, <laughs> it's entirely selfish. Um, and I've also obviously benefited from his generosity in reading and commenting on work, uh, and recently also just um, a privilege to examine his doctoral students, two of whom are here, Breedney Gronia and most recently Marina Sharp just this week, who's um, doctorate re-examined and was successfully and not formally conferred, but is there all um, in all but name. Um, so I think we've all acknowledged today this massive uh, scholarly contribution um, and really his great intellect and insight and perspicacity into legal issues. Um, and if at times that might come with a modicum of impatience at other people's sloppiness and low standards, that seems a very, very uh, low price to pay. And as somebody who had the misfortune of emailing Guy a document which not only omitted the S, but also the hyphen, (laughs) I apologise, Guy. It will never, ever, ever happen again. Uh, So I chose this topic for a couple of reasons. Uh, The first is that I'm really mired in the present. And uh, the present in the European context is just the reiteration and the revival of old bad ideas, um, including various manifestations of unsafe country. Um, And I found myself going back, reading uh, much of Guy's earlier work, including uh, the movement of persons in international law from 1978, um, but came across this editorial from 1992 um, in the International Journal of Refugee Law, and it just proved so generative. And I say that as somebody who's written about the really... Uh, technically confusing and uninspiring asylum procedures directives in both two iterations in the EU context and I thought in a page and a half Guy has said it all Um, and I just really wanted to look at some of the ideas that uh, he generates there so he begins by saying uh, the struggle to deal with increasing numbers of asylum seekers all of whom seem to have a valid claim to individual case by case determination continues to produce a flurry of desperate measures in 1992. Um, And it's worth recalling that, you know, at moments when European countries uh, are in a panic about refugees, uh, they produce um, a lot of ideas that travel. Um, And we've seen that 
with safe country concepts, as was very well illustrated in the great uh, edited collection which Helen and uh, Jane did um, about the global reach of European refugee law. Uh, So in this uh, paper I do three things. Um, I'm conscious that this is the end of a long day and I'm standing between you and Guy's presentation. I'm going to just really take this in very general terms. But just briefly recalling the origins of these practices, which after all came out of very informal European ideas when governments had one thing on their mind, uh, how can we reject these people or how can we ensure we get fewer claims? So a dynamic not unfamiliar at the moment. Um, And ask questions about the legal standards that are applicable, which in some ways you would think, well, we've spent the uh, intervening decades uh, engaging in many, many court challenges. In fact, it's almost kind of an over-judicialized, over-litigated set of issues. Um, And yet there are big open questions about what standards are applicable to the legality of uh, these practices. Um, and I say that mindful of uh, Violetta's very valiant attempt to say safe third country in particular is just contrary to the Refugee Convention, which has a lot of merit to it. But obviously the prevailing view is that under some conditions these practices um, are permissible. And I guess Michelle Foster's work on protection elsewhere um, set out some very clear standards about that. So the question that I wanted to really dwell on a little bit more, though, is the institutional one. That, well, the says who aspect, which uh, Guy deals with very uh, elegantly in the editorial. So these practices, as we all know, just uh, popped up from individual European governments uh, in the late 80s, 90s, um, and spread horizontally before there was any European harmonisation of these questions. The first European harmonisation comes just informally through London resolutions, non-binding, one on safe country of origin, manifestly unfounded, safe third country, and then we see them in the Asylum Procedures Directive. Uh, This directive, which was adopted, the last of the uh, instruments uh, adopted during the first phase of the EU asylum law, uh, adopted literally on the eve of when uh, the accession of 10 Central and Eastern European countries, who had no say in any of this legislation, but it was just foisted on them uh, the day that they acceded. Uh, and then a recast directive. And the technical issues, you know, these have been these principles have, are subject to very, very detailed um, EU legislative provision, which isn't what I'm going to talk about so much today. And then obviously Dublin, in its various iterations, which in and of itself is all about safe third country, both within the EU and also allowing for safe third country transfers outside under some conditions. Uh, So the legislative... So I guess these practices have become really formalised, even though those big questions about their legality um, were certainly not clear at the time of their adoption. Uh, So safe country of origin is really what the editorial focuses on, but some of the the points that are made in it really have much broader purchase. Um, And when we talk about the legality of this practice, um, you know, we could say, well, isn't it discriminating against on grounds of nationality? It's a point I'm going to look at in a moment. Sometimes these designations are just purely irrational, so the British courts occasionally have found that safe country of origin designations are just don't bear scrutiny under normal administrative law principles. If safe country of origin is institutionalised really badly, then you'll end up with refoulement, so you can just uh, challenge it on basic refugee and human rights law grounds. Um, But the context in which I wanted to talk about this was partly because um, it reflects another aspect of Guy's 
uh, multifaceted personality that we haven't talked about so much. So I think he was made an honorary Australian yesterday, but he's an actual Canadian. Uh, so I wanted to think about Canada also because I didn't want to give a depressing talk. Um, and I told him I wouldn't because I'm good at that as well sometimes. So, so in Canada, there was a bleak time in refugee protection, which when under the Harper administration, various restrictive refugee laws were put in place, including a very strange variant of safe country of origin called designated country of origin, which based on criteria of previous asylum claims could lead to certain countries being designated not as safe, just designated. And at some point the government tried to say, well, this wasn't really safe country of origin. We're just designating them. There's no assumption being made about these claimants. Uh, you didn't get an appeal, but we're not saying anything bad or good about the claim. That was one way they tried to say it wasn't really safe country of origin. Uh, but the statistical process uh, produced all sorts of weird results because it included withdrawn and rejected claims and Sean Rehag, a Canadian refugee lawyer of uh, great skill in these issues, uh, was able to generate uh, data showing how perverse using past recognition rates to decide about the safety of countries is, uh, which I think in the European context we should bear in mind because it's the basis on which relocation is supposed to work and the basis on which Afghans are deemed not to have strong protection needs, so it's dodgy uh, completely. And then after the quantitative phase, some of these uh, issues then would get looked at in an official discretionary review process, which was quite secretive. And then, as I said, the consequence of designation of the state was simply that you wouldn't have an appeal. Now, most people would look at that and say, well, the outcome will be more rejections of um, cases from these countries that are designated. Um, and really, that was the clear legislative and political intention. Although, interestingly, the conscientious first-instance decision-makers, when they knew there wouldn't be an appeal, actually started granting more asylum claims to people from these countries in a very nice, kind of very Canadian sort of policy <laughs> misfire. Uh, so that was one of the factual issues in the, in the case as well. But obviously I'm talking about a case because uh, the place you go when your government or parliament imposes this sort of mechanism is to court. And we talked in the previous panel about when is it right to litigate, when is it high risk to litigate, and really all this depends on the judge on the day, in a way. Some of them are not up to uh, scratch, but thankfully this particular case went before uh, a very lively judge, Justice Boswell, in the uh, Federal Court of Canada. And the legal issue that it tackled much more strongly than other uh, attempts to challenge uh, these sorts of mechanisms is equality, which again is not surprising if you're familiar with Canadian constitutional law because there's a much stronger and more robust substantive equality guarantee in the Canadian Charter. So the, uh, the judge in the case had no difficulty really saying this mechanism uh, just created, uh, violated the equality um, of applicants from countries that had been designated and didn't really have to uh, give the matter any great um, more detailed scrutiny than that. But interestingly, it uh, was quite categorical that the discretionary process, which was highly political, that the designating uh, uh, institution would then go into, didn't cure uh, the statistical and quantitative assessment at all. Um, and said there was nothing uh, in that entirely secret and discretionary process 
um, which was supposed to add a qualitative assessment of the safety of the country and didn't cure any of the problems of the rigid um, quantitative assessment. Um, and here I was reminded very much as I read Guy's editorial because really the thrust of the editorial is to say, well, you know, in some instances, taking generalized views of the safety or particularly the dangerousness of particular countries isn't problematic. Um, but Guy in the editorial says there is no room and no need for confidential information or processes whose seductiveness seems to owe more to some male thing about secret societies to any particular concern with accuracy. Uh, here, here, in all souls in Oxford, we don't need to be secret societies in which uh, ones you got are amazing. <laughs> so my, my inference here was that Guy was not in secret drinking societies when at Wadham College. I have always drunk in public. <laughs> <laughs> and then as I ran through them again, I thought, oh my god, it looks like I'm making the other inference, but I'm not. <laughs> Guy was not, I think, in any secret drinking societies, or maybe he was, but you know. <laughs> uh, in any event, this Canadian case is really inspiring because it takes that quality very seriously and in fact the court basically says these processes quite clearly were about stigmatising applicants in particular it's about stigmatising Roma applicants um, and unfortunately when I looked at the sort of analogous European cases there was a real failure to grasp uh, similar issues when it came before the Court of Justice of the European Union in a case which when you read it looks really uninteresting because that's the way the reference sort of framed the questions, but it was very much about um, practices in Ireland in this instance where particular types, claimants of particular nationalities were, had their claims accelerated. Um, and they were trying to argue that this was discriminatory, and the court said, no, 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 nationality is part of the asylum assessment, so there's no discrimination at all going on in this particular context. So the discrimination uh, point wasn't really raised in the same way. Um, and when we look at the more recent developments, I think, you know, as was described earlier by Elspeth and as Bernard's question, there's a huge move now at the European level. And when I say at the European level, I really mean just coming out of the European Commission to say we need tighter rules. If only we harmonised everything more tightly in regulations, then we will get these uh, uh, harmonised outcomes, which seems to me to be uh, completely false premise, and we really aren't in an era where we need more legislation, we need uh, effective protection. Uh, but nonetheless, what we have um, is a proposal from um, late last year to have a common list of safe countries of origin, and it will include uh, Turkey. Uh, it's not officially part of the EU-Turkey deal, but it reflects the highly politicised context in which any sort of common list of safe countries of origin would be adopted. Uh, so clearly the conclusion that would be drawn from this kind of brief foray is that Canada is great um, and Guy can be very proud of being uh, a Canadian and that litigation actually doesn't stand alone. There's a great case brought by the Canadian doctors where they challenged uh, restrictions on healthcare for asylum seekers. And my personal favourite, Apulanapa, which is the challenging challenge to the uh, smuggling laws in Canada. This was the badge that people wore as part of the campaign, proud to aid and abet refugees, and some uh, sort of innocuous-looking individuals who had been convicted of human smuggling uh, challenged the uh, criminalisation in Canada. Now, all of these court cases were vulnerable to appeal. Um, 
And if you recall, say, third country, uh, the say, third country uh, rules in Canada had been um, similarly challenged, and also the Federal Court of Canada had said they were um, illegal, but on appeal, that was overturned um, in a decision which really didn't scrutinise say, third country very closely at all. But what really made the difference was obviously the election <laughs> and Trudeau and, uh, and creating a political dynamic where all of, as I understand it, all of those uh, judgments are now um, not under appeal on the policies and the legislation that was, um, changed, was, was, was impugned is, is being, uh, has been repealed. Uh, so I suppose what comes out of this and, and what comes out of the editorial is a sense in which, um, well, these kinds of presumptions can work well under certain contexts. Um, and as I read um, Guy's editorial, really what comes out very strongly um, is a sense in which, um, under the right conditions, these kinds of presumptions can be really helpful. And then in the editorial, he switches voice. So one part of the editorial is saying, yes, a human rights approach will always let the individual channel, channel these designations, uh, they can't ever be watertight. No country is safe for everyone. It's not, it's not necessarily safe for minorities and so on. Uh, but then pauses and says, but what is the other side of this coin? And says, well, the other side of this coin is actually group designation, is processes where we recognize refugees on a group basis, which, as you remind us in the editorial, also has its advantages for governments. Um, and really what I'm planning to do in the paper that I have promised Jane and, uh, is really to explore well, what are the situations where that group uh, designation can be fruitful and it's something that Guy has written about. And one of the things I most admire about the writing that he has done um, in relation to the events of the past two years is really, I feel, in very much in contradistinction to how I've been feeling, is not being mired in the detail of what's really happening but stepping back and saying, well, look, we have mechanisms of group determination, we have ways of dealing with mass influx, we could have an agency, as Elspeth has outlined, and we could be doing a lot more group-based determination um, of claims. And, and those are the sort of prompts in your contemporary work that I hope to take up um, in the paper that I write. So thank you, Guy, again, and I'm looking forward to hearing your input. Thank, thank you. you.